Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, welcome in to the uh, latest version of All Ball, the All Basketball Podcast. I am going to promo a couple of things. First, the Doug Gottlieb Show, which runs daily, 3 to 6 Eastern Time, 12 to 3 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio or the iHeartRadio app. You can follow me on Twitter. We tweet out stuff, that's, and you can listen to pods from the show as well. Uh, secondly, secondly, next week on the All Ball Podcast, we'll have a deep dive in with a longtime friend of mine, a guy who I admire greatly. He's the head coach of the Washington Wizards. Scotty Brooks is going to join us. Wait to hear his story. Things that you may not know about Scott Brooks, like uh, like what he actually had to do to earn money when he was a kid, how he got to, to TCU, who he played with at TCU, how he ultimately ended up at UC Irvine as a player. And then we got some minor league stories for you. I got to tee up. I want to ask him about finally making the 76ers, living with Charles Barkley early on in his NBA career, all the way until playing for uh, for a world championship and playing with the with the Houston Rockets and Akeem Olajuwon, what it's like to start games in the NBA from going as a CBA guy back in the day, all the way to becoming a head coach with the Oklahoma City Thunder and now the Washington Wizards. We got stories about KD. I got to ask him about. I've uh, been asking about John Wall's picture with USA Basketball. So much to get into. Scott Brooks next week on the All Ball Podcast. It may be so good that, like this one, we'll have to cut it up into to two parts. In the meantime, let's dig back in with Jay Billis. If you missed last week, we got some of some of the early Jay Billis life. I, I found it fascinating to hear his dad wasn't a basketball guy. Um, dad was blue collar. His mom said so many different interesting things. Or both his mom saying like, "Hey, if you're complaining about get, getting the basketball, why don't you?" His dad said like, "Why don't you go get it when they miss?" You know, very matter of fact. 
and the idea that he went to play for Mike Shashevsky before Mike Shashevsky was Coach K, you know, was America's basketball coach. And the reason why he turned down so many other historic programs was he just felt like Coach K was honest. You know, he just felt like Coach K was a guy who who did what he said and said what he did. And 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 that struck him. Also, the talk of you know the, the tales of him playing against Ralph Sampson, playing against Michael Jordan, and also we talked to him about playing against Len Bias. What type of player Len Bias was. All right, so the the stuff with Jay was so good, we cut it up into two parts. And look, some of you have been waiting for me and Jay Billis to go at it head to head about amateurism. And in this podcast, you'll hear some of that. At the end, I'll kind of circle back and give you a couple of my thoughts. I didn't want to make it an all-out war and argument over two sides. We simply agree to disagree. You'll hear Jay's side of it. You'll hear a little bit of my side of it. You can discuss with me on social media and what you think. So we'll set up Jay on uh, the NCA. Does he hate the NCA? Does he value the NCA? Why he believes payers, players should be outright paid, paid for their likeness? Should they be able to go straight from high school to the NBA, or should they have to go to college? Plus, I'm going to ask him the question that I really want to know, which is, you got all these different coaches that, that coached at Duke, played at Duke. Pick one. Who should replace Mike Krzyzewski as Duke's next head men's basketball coach? All right, let's dig into it. Here's Jay Billis in the All Ball Podcast. Okay, um, I, I, you mentioned Jordan and Sam Perkins. People forget how how good a how great a college player Sam Perkins was. Uh, they had that incredible team. When you first played against Michael Jordan, did what was there like when you're playing against him? Did you know? Did you have any sense that he was different? He was more special than all those other talented players in the ACC. Yes, we played the first time that I played on the same court with him was in pickup games. So uh, back back then, and I don't know what they do now. They maybe they do the same thing, but back then. We would go to, we being the Duke guys, would go to Chapel Hill for two, three days and play in their gym. They would come to our place for two, three days and play in ours, and we would play pickup games. And uh, and actually, the only guy that didn't play was Perkins. Uh, he did not like playing pickup games. And uh, But we, we when you saw him play in those, you're like, whoever said all men are created equal was full of it, man, because nobody can do this. <laughs> I'd never seen any. That, honestly, Doug, that was the – I think you and I may have talked about this when we went to dinner with our wives uh, this summer. That, that was the first time when, you know, like your experience is probably the same. Like you're growing up in Southern California. You play in high school. And the more work I put in, the better I got. And and I didn't I really didn't think that there w- that that there was a limit as to how good I was going to get and whoever I played against it, 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 I, I felt like I was I, I was just as good and then I got to college and played against I, there were three guys I played against where I was going you know what it doesn't matter what I do I'm never going to be as good as those guys Sampson Jordan and Len Bias like those three guys I was like no that's the, no I, I can't that'll never happen. Like, I can't yeah. match that. Didn't mean I couldn't win in the games that we played, and I couldn't be successful. But you're like, that's, a, that's another gear, and I don't have that gear, and I'll never get it. Yeah. Um, no, I, rem- I remember. That was a big I went- deal to, to come to that realization. No, I remember um, uh, when the Thunder, I, I take, took my wife to a Thunder playoff game, um, and we're watching, and I was watching Tony Parker, who I, I marvel at. I, I think he's one of the more underrated players 
um, in the last 20 years in the NBA. But we were watching Russell Westbrook, and she's like, could you have played in this game? And I was like, yeah, I, I think I, I could have played in this game, but I would have no chance against Russell Westbrook, like literally no chance. He's just, he's just too, too athletic for him. And I was, I was really athletic, but he was just – he had another gear. I, Iverson, I felt like, was – you know, some guys are quick and some guys are fast. He was both, but he was wild – and you could you could goad him into taking shots that he couldn't make. Uh, I remember playing against Ray Allen, but the, the guy that jumps out to me, I played in the the what's now the Jordan game. It used to be the Magic's Round Ball Classic, and uh, I replaced Chauncey Billups. Got hurt, so I replaced Chauncey Billups. We practiced all week, and Kevin Garnett showed up the day of the game because he was he took the SAT on a Saturday, and the game was on a Sunday, and he and he's trying to pass the SAT to play in college, and like look, all those guys. Uh, Paul Pierce was on my team, and he was a roommate at ABCD. And I, I remember um, it was the first time I saw Vince Carter, who no one could beat in a dunk contest. But Kevin Garnett showed up, and he was just better than everybody else. Like, there was a level to which the, all these the top players, the Ron Mercers of the world were playing, Sharif Abdul-Rahim, and then Kevin Garnett, without practicing at all, playing in the game. You're like, wow. He just he moves like a guard, only he's six foot ten. So I, I, know, I know what you're talking about. Um, what about Len Bias? Like, obviously— you talk about formative things in your in your life. I remember Hank Gather's death made me scared of heart arrhythmia. I remember that Magic Johnson contracting HIV made me scared of unprotected sex. And I remember Len Bias made me scared of cocaine. I, I didn't... The, the Big East we would see in California on Big Monday, the ACC, I don't remember Len Bias. What was he like? Um, he was one of the, the three or four best players I ever saw at that time. And... and He's six eight, uh, built like Superman, um, and guys' bodies didn't look like this back then. Now, now it's a little more common because of the nutrition and how they, you know, guys lift weights and all that stuff. He was a natural stud, and you know, you know better than I do. Like there, there are certain guys that that are powerful leapers, that that some of the most powerful leapers in the game just aren't good jump shooters like that's uh, those those two things often don't go together and he was he was maybe the best leaper in the game especially off two feet and then one of the best jump shooters like he could really shoot it and uh and we couldn't we couldn't stop him um he had 41 against us in one game and we had good defenders and uh and he put four you know, we still won the game that was great but but he was he was I think Coach K has actually said this, and I, I would actually I would put Johnny Dawkins in this category. But but Coach K had said that the three guys that back then in the '80s that were head and shoulders above everybody else in the league were Samson, Jordan, and Len Bias. He was unstoppable, and when he when he got drafted by, like I thought he was the best player, uh, and and. Like, I would have taken him number one, even though Brad Doherty was number one. That turned out to be a great decision because Brad was a, an unbelievable player uh, and a great person. But I thought Bias was the best player in our league. And so when – and I thought he was the best player in college basketball, frankly. Like, Walter Berry and Johnny Dawkins shared National Player of the Year that year. But Bias was so much better than Walter Berry. It wasn't funny. And so when he died, I think he died either one or two days after the the 86 NBA draft. And so I was out in California, and my mom told me that he had passed away. Uh, I had just woken up, and she said, well, Len Bias died. And I remember that day 
for for me that was the equivalent of the Kennedy assassination in my life that you know my parents would always I, Kennedy was assassinated a month before I was born and my parents and and all their friends would always talk about where they were when Kennedy was assassinated and when they found out and and uh, like I, I don't think I'll ever forget the one the feeling and two exactly where I was and exactly what was going on when uh, uh, it, it was like uh, the equivalent now of of people saying everybody remembers exactly where they were and what were they they were doing when 9/11 happened, nice. and and that was that. And even though it's totally different, I'm not trying to equate the things, but that no, was no, the, I, the same, I, I same type of deal when when Len Bias passed away. No, when, when Magic when when we found out I was a high school freshman, I remember when when Magic was going to announce that he had HIV. I remember my high school coach Tom McCluskey who played it for Dick Harder at uh, Penn State. He called us all in. And he said, you know, um, uh, boys, you know, uh, Magic Johnson is going to uh, announce that he has HIV. HIV is a virus that leads to, to AIDS, and he's going to die from this. And you, you have to take serious, you know, about unprotected sex. I just, like, everybody started crying. Like, I remember where, I remember that day. I, I, so I completely and totally get it. You were, you, were, you were drafted in the 86 draft, but you never played for the Mavs. Take me through what happened, what it was like back then being drafted and then going overseas playing in Italy and Spain. I got drafted by Dallas, I think, in the fifth round. That was back when there were like six or seven rounds or whatever it was. Maybe maybe there were like eight rounds. Uh, and, and the NBA was probably 25 teams at the time, maybe less than that. Maybe, maybe it was 24. Because Mark Price was a second-round pick, and, and he was like the 24th pick in the draft, something like that. Uh, he and Dennis Rodman were second-round picks that year. Um, so I got drafted by Dallas. I went to camp. Dick Mata was the coach. And, uh, and my draft class was uh, – uh, Roy Tarpley was the number one player uh, and, and taken by the Mavs. I think he was taken like six overall or something. And Tarpley was another guy where you're going, you know what, that dude is – Roy Tarpley was a Hall of Fame player. If he could have kept clean on, on stuff he was doing, he would have been in the Hall of Fame. Um, and, but Dallas was the Pacific Division champion at the time, so they had uh, Rolando Blackman and Ron sure. Harper and Mark Aguirre. You know, James Donaldson, Detlef Shrimp was on the team, and I had I had thought, okay, well, if I go in there and play really well, uh, there are a couple guys I felt like, well, I, I think I'm better than these guys, and uh, I found out like third day at uh, rookie camp that uh, the Mavericks already had 13 guaranteed contracts and there were only 12 spots on the team, and I was like, well, it doesn't matter what we do here, you know, no, they're not going to cut somebody to put us on the bench to wave a towel around for the for the, the Pacific Division champs. So, uh, you know, I, I went to camp. I, did the, I, I thought I played well, and then I got a contract to go overseas, and I played in Italy. And my agent was a guy named Larry Fleischer, who was the former head of the Players Association and represented so many big shots back then. And, uh, and so he, he, had, he had, like, interviewed me when I was in college, um, and, and it submitted to an interview process. I actually interviewed him. And uh, and my dad convinced me, you know, like I was dumb enough to think that some of the younger guys, younger agents, because they could devote more time to me, were the was a, a that's the way I should go. And my dad said, no. He said, go with Larry Fleischer. He goes, I'd rather have a little bit of his time than all of somebody else's time. That's and that nice. turned out to be really smart because uh, you know I I got a great deal in in Italy. I played there my first year. I went back to training camp the following year when John McLeod was the coach. And uh, I just wasn't good enough. Like I was, I was six eight, 
and uh, and I was a power forward in a league where six eight power forwards aren't you know I wasn't quick enough to stay in front of a, a three, and I wasn't big enough to hang with some of the fours in the league. Now could I have hung on with a team for a little while somewhere in the yes I think I could have. But with the Mavs, that wasn't going to happen. And they never cut me. I went to camp three years in a row, and I was never cut. I always went back overseas before uh, veterans camp was over. And so I've never, I was never cut by the, by the uh, Dallas Mavericks. And, uh, I mean, it's kind of a weird story. But uh, when, I was, when I got into broadcasting and I was doing like a Louisville Southern Miss game or something, and I ran into Keith Grant, who was the GM of the uh, of the, the Mavericks. He was a, he was like the equipment guy when I was there, and uh, and we, he came over. We were talking and having a laugh, and he said, "Do you know you're still on our active player list?" And I'm going, "I am." And he goes, "Yeah, we've never cut you." And I said, "Well, could you like trade me or waive me or something? Like just waive me uh, in the middle of the season? Like all my friends would would love seeing that. You know, Jay Billis put on waivers in 1996 or whatever it was." Uh, but I was never cut by the Mavericks. Yeah, you you could have you could have been part of some like trade. You know, there's there's guys that aren't in the NBA. Keith Van Horn's been part of trades even after he's done playing. You should have hung on to that status. You yeah, could have gotten some extra money, money out like of the deal. Trade those yeah. guys and they throw some money at them just to make the money work and all that. That that would have been a nice uh, nice way to. But it was it was. Uh, you know, you've been through it, and 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 you were a lot closer to the NBA than I was. No, but, no, no, I was it, not. It, I, it that's not a, that true. Know, it's been a dream of yours to play, but the 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 good part for me was playing in Italy was a was a great thing for me because um, you know after going through four years of college and and I I loved being a role player on the teams I played on and with the guys I played with and the coach I played for loved it. Um, but it was kind of cool when I went to Italy and I got to be a star again. Uh, you know, you average 20 points a game and, and all that stuff, and you're among the leading scorers in the league. That was fun again. And, and so when I quit um, playing at, to go be a coach on Coach K's staff after the 89 season, like I, I had, I had kind of accomplished what I wanted to again. Like I'd go, okay, you know, I got to I got to do what I wanted to do in the game as a player, and it made sense to quit when I quit because I thought I'd play 10, 12 years uh, overseas. But but um, for some reason, like like uh, the ego boost of being a star again, even though it was Italy and not the NBA, was a nice uh, a nice thing. So why quit? I got a I got a job offer. Um, Coach K had called me and 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 said uh, I got an opening on my staff uh, and I'd like you to, to 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 take it. And I had told him I, I wanted to keep playing, and he said that's fine, but I just don't know that this is going to come around for you again. <laughs> Which you know was, was a uh, nice way of saying like like take this now because I'm not going to offer this to you later. Uh, maybe he would have I don't know, but um, I wound up getting into law school right after that and it was coach k's idea that i do both um and i and i honestly doug i i think he was pulling the strings on all of it that um you know he knew i had applied to law school um and and so i think it was all kind of part of of a plan that he had that look you said you wanted to do this i'm going to help you make it happen and i told him when i was in high school that i was interested in broadcasting i didn't know what that meant but he put me in touch with Duke alums that were involved in it, and I started working during the summertime. And so he, he really helped me um, kind of get a foothold in, in the broadcast industry to where I, I, had, I had built up 
uh, some equity, and, and I learned about it, and I met a bunch of people, and I worked a bunch of great events, and, I, and it, it, it kind of greased the skids for me to get into it later. And then, uh, and then the whole law school coaching thing, I don't know. I thought I would stay in coaching, um, but uh, it wasn't the right thing for our family when, I got, when Wendy and I got married. And so we just decided to go a different direction. I, I started practicing law, and that's what, that's what sort of led to the broadcast thing after that. All right, we'll get around to that in a second. You're on the staff in 1990. My favorite player was Bobby Hurley. Mm-hmm. And I, remem- I remember just being devastated. And so many of my friends loved UNLV. You know, UNLV, and, my, and this goes back to my dad was an assistant, recruited you some uh, at, at Long Beach State. And UNLV used to come in, and they were bigger and badder. And my dad coached Craig Hodge, was an assistant when, uh, under Tex Winter, and Craig Hodge was their best player. UC Irvine actually had great players, probably as good or better, more pros maybe than UNLV, and they beat UNLV. But UNLV would always win the PCAA. And I, I remember that 1990 um, – national championship game and Bobby was sick and running off to the bathroom. But what, what was, what was that like to be a part of it? Cause there was a, a bit of a, a trend there going back to when you were, when went to the first final four coach K was that Duke would kind of exceed expectations and find a way to get to a final four, but you guys couldn't seemingly win a final four, win a national championship. You get to the finals in 90 and just get annihilated. What happened? Yeah, um, you're right about sort of the feeling. Uh, so my senior year in 86, we won 37 games. That was more games won in a single season than any team in the history of the game. And we were the number one team. We got clipped by Louisville by a bucket. And we, were, we, we thought we were better, and we thought we should have won. We didn't. And then the ones they got to after that, maybe 89, 90, or uh, 88, 89, 90, um, probably wasn't the best team. And, uh, and uh, uh, UNLV didn't just beat us. They beat the hell out of us. It, it, it was by 30. And it's still, I think it's still the largest uh, margin of victory in, the, in, in NCAA title game history. And it just got away from us. And, you know, the, the, kind of the interesting thing, and I learned, you know, I learned so much from Coach K in so many different ways. But, you know, the next year um, we wound up facing up against UNLV in the semifinals the following year in 91. And UNLV was undefeated. They had their whole team back. I mean, they were so good. It was ridiculous. And, you know, the, the staff back then uh, was, uh, was Pete Caudet, Mike Bray, who's now at Notre Dame, and Tommy Amaker is now at uh, Harvard, and, and I was the, the GA. And all the assistants were basically saying, there's no need for us to watch the tape of last year's game. You know, we were kind of thinking, why would we show, why would we show ourselves getting bludgeoned? You know, it was like a cat playing with a mouse in a corner, you know. And Coach K is like, no, we're showing it to them. We're going to show them all the mistakes we made, and if we clean up this, this, and this, we're going to be in the game at the end with a chance to win, and that's where we live. We live in close games. They don't play in any, and we're going to know how to operate, and they're not. And he sold the players on the idea. Like we show, he he showed them everything that they made mistakes on. We if we do this better, if we eliminate this, all this stuff. And then he told them like we're going to be in this game at the end, and we're going to know how to act, and they're not. And uh, and then it happened. You know, it's, it's like it's so brilliant, sort of as a as a I don't know what what you'd call that motivation, inspiration, whatever it is, but prognostication but but it was it was amazingly empowering for the players and even even a guy like me sitting on the bench as an assistant watching that but the year before man when that thing started going downhill and there was no way to stop it 
it was uh, I don't think I've ever felt as helpless in a basketball game as that. Um, that was that was one of the worst feelings I've ever had, and and because you're you're that close to to something you've always wanted, and uh, I'm still not over my senior year when we lost in the title game. I think about it all every time we go to the Final Four to broadcast games and stuff. Um, it 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 eats at me, and it's so different. Like you know, you've played in the Elite Eight. Uh, you know, I, I played in the tournament before. When you lose before the championship game. Um, I mean, every loss hurts, but nothing nothing hurts more than finishing second, like finishing eighth or something or sixth. I don't know. know. With that, that 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 you're not as close. When you finish second, it sucks. It's brutal, and uh, and I don't I don't know that I'll ever I don't know that I'll ever feel okay about that. You know, it's interesting. I actually I, I'm I'm not over the elite eight, and I played I played poorly. We all played poorly. And Florida, if you look at their roster, they were incredible. I would, I would, I look, I can't argue with somebody who actually played in the championship game. I would say that outside of losing in the championship game, this, the second worst loss is in the Elite Eight because, as you know, being a part of a Final Four team is immortality. Right? Yeah, that's, that's and a so, fair point. That's exactly right. That, that, that's so, so, like, I, I, I remember, I, I remember I, we, were, we were in Syracuse, New York, and um, Grant Wall was following me around. And he's like, look, if you win this game, you're going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated because you got a great story, right? And I just I, re- I remember it so remember waking up like thinking I'm going to dream about cutting down the nets. I'm going to wake up dreaming about it and I'm going to make it happen. Right? I'm just going to I'm just going to make it happen, make what I dream happen. And we we got down early. Coach got a technical foul. We got down like 13. We came back. We tied the game up. And then Mike Miller hits a three in transition. And like that was that we just did not have it. And uh, we didn't have a great game plan. We did. It was everybody was was involved in the. In, in the loss, and I remember watching them cut the net, nets down, um, and it was like you're, you're, you're living my destiny. So I can't imagine what that would be like in the national championship game, watching Purvis Ellison, never nervous Purvis, cut down the nets. Yeah, I, I, I would say the Elite Eight is the second worst of the losses yeah, to the Elite That's a fair point. I mean, and you'd think at, at our age, um, and look, it's not as it's not as sharp a pain as it was the the you know the six months afterwards, but um, but it's still it's still pretty sharp. And you'd think at age fifty four, you know, you kind of go, eh, you know, it's a long time ago. But but for some reason that that is a really hard that's a hard game to lose. And like you're saying about the final four thing, you know, like to be able to for some for some, to be able to call yourself a champion for the rest of your life is kind of a nice thing and and yeah. but it, it, it the funny part Doug is that you know when like I was lucky enough to be on that staff where where Duke won back to back in 91 and 92 so sure. you know I tasted sort of the championship uh uh win uh the national championship wins uh in those years as a as an assistant as a grad assistant and it and I I think Johnny Dawkins actually had called when he was in the NBA. Had called Tommy Amaker after the after the '91 championship and said, "I think he said something to the effect, does it does it take it away?" And and uh, and Amaker said, "No, it doesn't. Yeah. Like it's just different when it when you're a coach. I think at least from my seat, maybe it's different for Coach K being a, a head coach." But but as an assistant, it, it it it's not the same. It's not the same feeling. You, you only get a, a couple of shots at it, maybe only one as a player. And you know, coach like Coach K's had forty shots at this, and uh, and he's going to have even more. 
Um, and so th- there's just something uh, something different about when you're a player as opposed to a coach. All right, so there's two players I want to ask you. Well, actually, two players I want to ask you about on, on those back-to-back teams. Um, you added in Grant Hill, and there's I've come to know him, and I know how close of friends you you are, uh, you, your families are. Um, and there's there's incredibly special about him as a person that I I don't know if it translates on TV. I, I don't know if now play now kids because of the injuries. Uh, the injury that he suffered in the pros, and he, look, he still played till he's like forty. Um, but I don't know if people understand how breathtaking a, a player he was. But also, just there is this regal way by which he carried himself, to which you could you could fall out of the sky and be in a gym and watch him walk in, and go like, I don't know anything about the sport, but that guy is different than the rest of them. W- w- give me, give me to, to somebody who didn't un- doesn't understand what made Grant Hill so special as a player, and I know he's still special as a person. What was it? That's a good question. The, the, the well, first of all, on the person front, even though you asked me about the player part, um, Duke has put out a lot of a lot of good guys and a lot of great guys, I should say. Um, Duke's never put out a better guy than Grant Hill. Um, he may be the best person and and best sort of full package of, of person and player that's ever ever put on any kind of uniform at Duke. And, and I, I really believe that. As a player, um, Grant was uh, like he, he had a, a humble way of carrying himself, but, uh, but was he's the most gifted uh, basketball player, I think, to ever play at Duke, and that includes guys like Kyrie Irving and Marvin Bagley III and all these guys that have been, uh, been higher picks than him. Because uh, I think Grant was like the third pick in the draft when he came out. I think uh, I think it was Glenn Robinson and Jason Kidd went in front of him. Um, but but Grant's the best player that Duke's ever put out, uh, ever ever produced, and you know could handle it. He was a point guard his senior year. Uh, he could guard anybody. He was long. He was athletic. Uh, uh, you know the only thing he couldn't do when he got there, he wasn't a, a really good shooter, but he became one. And look, Doug, I, I think we've all seen a lot of this game, and 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 you know, think this player's great, that player's great. I I re- I've researched this, and I saw it up close. Um, Grant Hill's first seven years in the NBA, there's only five guys in the history of the league that matched his numbers as far as points, rebounds, assists, and steals in in the first seven years in the league, and guys like. Magic, Bird, Jordan, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, guys like that. And, you know, the greats of the great. I happen to believe, like he's going into the Basketball Hall of Fame in, in early September, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. I, I think he's as deserving as anybody. Uh, I, I, I look upon Grant Hill as the basketball equivalent of Sandy Koufax, that before he was injured, and his injury almost cost him his life with the staph infection, all the stuff he had to deal with, um, it, his first seven years in the league, he was as good as anybody anybody that's played. I mean, he was that good. And and if he stayed healthy, if he didn't have to deal with the, with that that horrific injury, um, he would have it, it would have been no brainer on Hall of Fame. That he would have been uh, with the sort of the Mount Rushmore of, of players of uh, you know top twenty five guys that have ever played. I, I think he was that kind of player. All right. The other side to that is his is uh, Christian Leitner, mm-hmm. who played in the Dream Team, uh, had an incredible run his last two years, winning you know back to back national championships. 
but he had he had that that different sort of edge, right? Like uh, I, I I grew up. My sister was a UCLA cheerleader. We were season ticket holders, and and similarly, um, Don McLean and they played against each other had that kind of same nastiness and edge. I mean, look, he was kind of an asshole when he played. Both of them mm-hmm. were, but they were really really good. To somebody who didn't understand, like, because you look back, you look like Dream Team, you start going through all the guys, and you're like, Christian Leitner, really? What was he like? Uh, incredibly competitive. And, and like, Christian's a good guy, and he's smart and all that stuff. But it, it, that didn't translate back then because he didn't care as much what other people thought outside the program. He cared what Coach K thought, and he cared what his family thought and all that stuff. And I think he did care what his teammates thought. Although he didn't always convey that to them, um, he was—he was just all he cared about was was playing well and winning. And now maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm forgetting a, a little thing here or there, Doug. But uh, I don't ever remember him being outplayed. Um, whether he played Shaquille O'Neal or you, you name the guys he played against, I don't remember anybody outplaying him. And he—he he was that good. Uh, and I, I thought, honestly, he was going to be a much better pro. Uh, this is just my opinion, and I don't know that, that, that Coach K or some other people who know him better than I do would agree with this, but um, he didn't function very well in a losing environment. And uh, so when he went with the Minnesota Timberwolves, that, that, he didn't do well in that environment. But he, went, he, played a, he played a long time in the league, you know, 12 years or so, and averaged like 16 a game for his career. Yeah, he had a good career. He was an all-star one year when he was with the Hawks. He just played with crummy teams, and uh, and and I don't think he handled the the losing particularly well. Like he could be abrasive here and there, but uh, but I'm a, I was always a huge fan of his, and uh, uh, personally uh, as a player, you name it. I, I remember one time um, there are two things about him that 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 uh, I'll never forget. One is so he's like six eleven. And, and a great athlete from the standpoint of, of like, when, when you and I were kids, athlete meant you could do a whole bunch of things. It didn't mean you could just run and jump. Right. So he could walk on his hands, do a handstand, and walk on his hands from baseline to baseline at 6'11". Like, I'd never seen anybody do that. And, uh, and the other part was he and I played tennis uh, a, a few times. And, uh, you know, I mean, I grew up in Rolling Hills. You know, we had a lot of tennis players there. So I banged the tennis ball around a little bit. I wasn't that good but uh, on a relative basis. But I could, I, could, I could hit with other basketball players and be one of the better players. And that dude could play anything. Like tennis, he was, re- he was really good. He's, a, he's a, like an expert ping pong player. Um, uh, and he, he, would, he would run your mother over to win. Yeah, um, and, and I was always really impressed with uh, practice. He was competitive in every drill. You know, you know, guys say they do that, or you always hear. That. He really was competitive in every drill, and uh, and really hyper aware of his teammates being competitive. And when they weren't doing it, when they weren't living up to what he thought they should be doing, he let them know. And and I, I wasn't around a lot of guys like that, and he was he, he was a different breed in that regard. Okay, so ninety two, you guys went back to back, and you leave to become a lawyer. You were a um, you were defense uh, a, a criminal defense attorney, right? 
No, no, I never. Uh, the only criminal stuff I did was pro bono work. I was a. Uh, I started as a bankruptcy lawyer because I could get into court right away. And honestly, I didn't want to wait my wait my turn as a trial lawyer, as a litigator, because you kind of had to sit second chair and do a bunch of research stuff to get you know get your bona fides. So I, I went into bankruptcy first because I knew I could be in court all the time, and then I switched over to uh, to litigation. I was, you know, litigation is nothing more than sort of essentially a trial lawyer. And so I did commercial litigation and then wound up doing some, you know, securities litigation before I, I wound up hanging it up after seven, eight years in. Okay, so uh, but before you hung it up, how did it come? And you mentioned that during some summers you did some TV stuff. When was the first time you started working for ESPN Colin Games? Uh, when, when I had practiced law, it was a decision that my wife Wendy and I made that, you know, the best thing for our family we felt was going to be, let's just live in one place. And, and you know, if I, if I stayed in coaching, as you know, you know, from your, your experience with your dad and, and all that, you know, you'd have to move around a lot. And we didn't think that was the best thing for, for a family. So we just decided for us it was the best thing to, you know, I'd practice law and we'd, we'd sort of move on. And, uh, I got an offer to do radio games uh, uh, from a, a guy named George Hable called me and offered me uh, the Duke Radio Network to be a color commentator on the, the doing the radio. And so I thought about it for a little while, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this because it's you know the money was next to nothing, but um, I thought it'd be fun, and I thought maybe it could lead to something else. And if and if I if it affected my law practice to where it was a problem, I could quit. And so, you know, why would I quit before I started? Let, let's try it, and if it doesn't work out, I'll quit. And uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was a it was it was hard because of the time it took away, but uh, I, I started getting in 1995. I, ESPN offered me some games, and so I started doing games for ESPN, uh, just sort of here and there. And then you know how it is. One thing leads to another, and and you know I got offered a full slate of games, and then and then. Uh, Several years later, I got offered a. They wanted me to leave my law practice and come full time, and uh, and so I did that. Uh, I figured that with a you know with a law degree and having practiced law for several years in my back pocket, um, if I went into broadcasting, I screwed it up. But I could just start my practice and you know, go back and start my practice up again. It wouldn't be that hard, and uh, and it turned out to be a, a good decision because. Uh, you know, as much as, as I think I enjoyed practicing law, you know, sitting at basketball games a hell of a lot more fun. No, no question about it. There was the the breakthrough I, I was told with you at ESPN was when you did the women's tournament. And it was it was your ability to do the research and then to still be you and analyze the game. But while doing the women's game, which showed not just a passion for it, but also an understanding of, of the work it took. Do you remember what year that was that you first did the women's tournament? Yeah, it was 2000. Um, at the beginning of the year, if I remember right, um, you know, the, the NCAA had complained to ESPN uh, that about having professional people doing college games, you know, the women's tournament. And so, like, what, Nancy Lieberman or Rebecca Lobo and, the, the, and folks like that had been um, – they were so tied with the WNBA, and, and I was told the NCAA didn't like it. So, um, uh, so they, I was approached by some of the higher ups at ESPN saying, "Will you do the women's tournament for us?" And I, and I, I had said, "Well, if I do that, like it's a different game. I mean, I, I got to really work on this and study it." And so I, I gave back some some men's games, and I went on the road and I started studying the women's game. 
And, uh, and I, I think you're right, sort of, that that, that was a, a step forward for me because I had done several years of men's games, but I was doing sort of smaller conferences and all that. And, and it was a bigger platform, honestly. So when I got to the, you know, I was doing the studio with Robin Roberts and Vera Jones and all that, and, uh, and then UConn that year beat Tennessee in the final. And it was sort of the, that was when I knew that, you know what, UConn's not going away. Like they got, they're the best team now, and they got this recruiting class coming in. And like this, and I had said after the game, like, look, this isn't a fluke. You better get used to this because Tennessee, like it's not Tennessee anymore. It's UConn, and it's going to be for the foreseeable future. Like there's been a change. There's been a sea change, and it's over. Um, and that caused some waves when I said that. Uh, you know, people didn't say that about Pat Summit's program. And so, uh, you know, I think I felt confident in what I was talking about, but uh, I think you're right. Like, that was, a, and that was a really fun time. And then I started doing the WNBA. So the WNBA had just started, uh, and I, so I was doing WNBA games, too, during the summer. And uh, my friends called it the Witness Protection League because nobody watched it back then, but, but it was really fun. They were all NBA arenas, and we threw a lot of resources at it because we were trying to get the NBA. Um, so it was a that was a fun time, and uh, and I really enjoyed I really enjoyed all that stuff. But I only did the women's tournament that one year, uh, but really enjoyed it. I worked with great people. It was really fun. Yeah, no, it was, it was something I actually learned from it, which was um, uh, Dave Revson, a friend of both of ours, shared it with me. He said, you know, uh, the the lesson there is that while it might not be important to the public, it's important to Bristol. And if you do something well that's important to Bristol, they pay attention. Like I did the. I, I, working with you guys and the game day guys, and one day I went on the road was the, the launch of ESPNU, and I did a month with ESPNU, and that kind of propelled me because no one else was watching ESPNU, but everybody, Mark Shapiro and the guys in Bristol were, and that kind of elevated me in their eyes, and I, I, was, I had a much bigger slate the, uh, the, the next year. So I, I actually took from that and used it in my, in my own career. Um, all right, so then to me, the best... And like, look, Al McGuire probably provided the most color, but I'm not sure if you look back, his analysis was nearly what some of the analysis we hear from people like you today. Uh, so, you know, I know that some people say Al McGuire. I would say the best broadcast team anyone has ever had in college basketball. And I've worked with some, some of the guys that you work with, but I think you, McDonough, and Bill Raftery, uh, whether it would, it would start in Maui and then it would go through Big Monday and... Look, I'm I'm a tough critic, right? And you and I would have it out on some like basketball battles, and I just felt my I just one I would learn about basketball, I learn about the teams, and I would laugh. I mean, really, really laugh. What was that team like to work? Because I that's the that's the best college basketball has ever been broadcast, in my opinion. What that's was that? What was that like? And, and and I think that's more about McDonough and, and Raftery than than me. But but it was uh, when I the first time I got I worked with them. Uh, somebody had the bright, you know, bright idea, which I didn't think was very bright at the time, of dropping me in the middle of their broadcast team. So we had a game uh, at Notre Dame, and uh, and Notre Dame had a, a guy named Danny Miller at the time who had transferred in from Maryland, if I remember right. And so uh, Danny Miller does something great, and uh, and Raftery screams out. It's Miller time, and you know how I love hearing that. And then uh, and McDonough says, except on Big Monday, brought to you by Bud Light. And I was like, all right, I, this is, I like this. And I, I felt self-conscious about being there because it was like being dropped in the middle of like the third wheel in a marriage or something. 
and I'm sitting, you know, I'm lodged between McDonough and Raftery thinking that they, they can't be happy about this. And, and it was, you know, we became, uh, I knew them both very well individually, but we became great friends and it was more, uh, like it was, gr- we had fun on the air and then, but we had more fun off the air and all we did was hang out and afterwards we'd go out and, uh, and I sort of made the decision back then that, um, that no matter how painful it would be to get up the next morning, I was not going to say no to Bill Raftery. So if he wanted to go out, we're going out. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to say, well, you know, I got an early flight. I'm going. And uh, and there were there was more than a few times where I had to drag myself to the airport the next day, and I didn't feel very good. But it was worth every every bit of pain that we went through or that I went through because uh, I couldn't. <laughs> my liver is not as strong as his. But we had fun, and and like I learned a lot from Bill. I think you and I are probably the same way in this, Doug. That you know, if we're accused of anything, we're probably accused of taking taking the game a little bit too seriously at times. That that you know, we we don't have to make it. A, you know, uh, it's not we're not sending troops to war in this thing. We can kind of relax a little bit more. But um, Bill Bill has a, a unique way, and you know him really well. He has fun, and and he takes he takes it seriously. He prepares he prepares every bit as hard as anybody I've ever worked with, and uh, but he loves the game, and more importantly, he loves the people in the game, and he loves yeah. the experience of it and being around it, and uh, and I learned a lot from him that way that uh, that this is supposed to be fun, and we got into this because it's fun. It doesn't mean it's not serious at times, and and all that stuff. But uh, but we had a blast together, and when Bill went to Fox and left ESPN, uh, I was really happy for him. I was really happy for him uh, as a friend because at, at at and he's in the later stages of his career. For him to be celebrated the way he is right now uh, is really heartwarming for me because I think it should have been this way all along. But but there was from a selfish standpoint when when that meant we weren't going to be working together. There was a sadness to it uh, that that I still haven't gotten quite over. Um, but but just seeing him uh, seeing him be celebrated this way and Emmy wins and all that stuff, um, it was it was too long a time in coming, and nobody deserves it more because there's not been a, a nicer person that's worked in the broadcast industry than Bill, and there's not a more talented individual in the big moment than, than Sean McDonough. It was, a, it was an honor, and still is, to, for me to work with Sean, but it was an honor to be in that, that trio. Yeah, I feel bad for Sean, though. I feel like, uh, you know, the, the, the Monday Night Football thing didn't, didn't work, and I feel like some of that was that, you know, you, you parachute in there with Gruden, and they didn't, he didn't have the chemistry that he has with you or that he had with Raft, and, and uh, it's, it's pretty obvious when you put the right mix together, he's an outstanding, an outstanding game caller, as, as good as, as anybody um, in the business. Um, look, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, I didn't ask you about, uh, about amateurism. You and I have, we get, whether when we work together or now Twitter or your various shows, we have obviously the opposite opinion of it. But I think many people view um, your approach to it as, you know, one – um, you just you don't like the NCA, and then two, you you think I, I don't and I don't want to put words in your mouth. You think that amateurism is kind of a sham. Um, how would you characterize kind of your feelings first about the NCA and whether or not that organization is fixable? 
Well, first, I don't dislike the NCAA. Um, I dislike some of the policies, and and I think there are, you know, while some people use the term hypocrisy, I, I use I try to use the term contra, you know contradiction. There's they're they're contra, they contradict themselves all the time with their policies. Um, my thing has always been about policy rather than people. There are great people at the NCAA. There's so many of them that that, that are my friends. Um, so we may differ on, uh, kind of like you and I may differ on, on an issue of policy. I don't think you and I differ all that much. Um, you know, my thing is simply, you know, we're in a multibillion-dollar business here, and and the athlete should have the same economic rights as everybody else. And you know, the way I the way I have understood your position is. Like, look, the athletes get enough, and and uh, you know, wait your four years, and then you can go, you know, make money later on. And and it's it's if you don't like it, uh, go somewhere else. You know that that this is all legitimate and okay and all that. Um, I would I would and and if if I've made a mistake there, you know, jump in. But what what I would say in response is kind of, you know, that's a great way to do it at your school. Like, if you don't believe at your school that you should pay, then don't pay. Similarly, with coaches or facilities and all that, each school makes their own decisions on how to do that. Like, my, my school, uh, where I went to school, they're paying Coach K $8, 9000000 million a year. That's great. I have no problem with that. Uh, I just don't believe that the players should be, re, you know, sort of restricted to their expenses only. And while I hear Mark Emmert and, and, and folks within the structure say, well, they're students, like as if that's dispositive of the issue. And, I, and my thing is, well, wait a minute. What other student do you tell that you can't make your fair market value in whatever field of endeavor you choose? There's no other student that they say, well, you're a student, so you can't make money, uh, and you can't you can't be an employee of the university, and you can't be. It's the athlete is the only one, and and so while while folks say, well, hey, you know, it, you have a choice. If you don't like it, don't play. I tend to look at it that, well, why don't the schools have the choice? They should have the choice that if you don't want to pay, don't pay. Or if you want to pay less, pay less. Or if you want to go Division Two, go Division II. Um, you know, I tend to think that if you're in the Division One arena and you're selling these players for all this money, the players should be allowed to benefit from it. Is there a middle ground? Can we do name, image, and likeness, all that? I'm sure there are middle grounds, but I wind up starting with the sort of the idea that, like, look, this is big money. This is big money stuff. The players should be allowed to do this, and absent a compelling reason why they shouldn't, um, why they why they shouldn't be allowed to have the same economic rights as literally everyone else, literally every other student, literally every other person. Uh, why should the athlete be the only one restricted industry wide by a cartel rule? Um, I don't get that. And uh, but individual schools, if they don't want to pay, or if some schools want to pay more. Uh, I'm all for it, just as I am with facilities and coaching salaries and travel and all that other stuff. I, I, I say let the schools make their own decisions. I see. I, I would actually. I, I don't. I'm not necessarily an absolutist in terms of you do it this way or or you're gone or or go do something else. I do think that one of the things is undersold is look. There is the opportunity for players to come straight to high school, go to the G League for a year, and then put their name in the NBA draft. And to this point. No one's done it, right? There was the kid that was going to go to Syracuse, but now he's he's not doing the G League this year, um, anyway. Uh, my feeling is actually it's it's almost like a salary cap, right? Like the underrated part of the salary cap is not that there's a ceiling, but that there's a floor. 
And I do actually think that players are compensated. They're compensated with all of the benefits of scholarships, but also compensated in terms of the promotion, the kind of endless, ceaseless promotion that um, that both of us are a part of. Right. That's what we do. We we educate the American public and frankly, um, their future fans on these players at a very young age, right when they come to college and being tied to the name of the university, the image of the of the college coach, they used kind of that. They use the the branding of the school and of the coach to kind of be promoted within the sport. And I think there's a value there. I also think there's a value to simply being admitted to school. Like I, I couldn't have gotten a Notre Dame on my own then, let alone now with my grades when I was in high school, I had no chance of getting in, especially as, as, as you know, putting kids through school, how difficult it is just to get into many of these schools. So I, I don't think it's as much cut and dry. Hey, if you don't like it, you know, be gone with you. I actually think there's a lot more value in for the, for the floor, for the non one percenters. And that's who we're protecting. Even if there's a couple of guys that could make a couple of dollars off their name and likeness that fair. And, and the other part is that I look at it as, I look at it as, Hey, all these colleges, they've been, they're making money off of all of their students. You talk about, they're actually making money off of all of their students, whether it's the research they do or simply uh, the admission that they pay for athletes are no different and making money off of students is only we're only more aware of what they make off the of students because of the TV rights. We're not aware of what they make off of the grants and the other things that they make off of the research uh, of the students that isn't as publicized. Yeah, those those are fair points. But I, I would argue that your points on the value side, when, when you say, OK, they're, they're getting this value and that value and all that, those are all fair points. But the, the, but to me, my argument would be, well, if they're so valuable, let let those things stand on their own in the marketplace. Because you could certainly make the same argument that, you know, coaches are allowed the same platform and have all these other, you know, they get all these other benefits from working in this industry, and they wouldn't be as coveted. They're, you know, the one percent wouldn't be as coveted, uh, or those outside the one percent wouldn't be as coveted on the NBA level. Uh, but yet they're making millions of dollars because the college market is is its own separate and distinct market. So one's value in the NBA is not is not reflective of one's value in the college market. And your point about you know other students uh, and and you know they're be, having uh, money made off of them, they're not restricted by an industry wide rule. So every other student, they're, they're, they're subject only to the rule of their university. Um, there, there's no industry-wide rule that, that keeps everybody from, from being paid above a certain level. And I hear you on the, the – like when you say that, that you, know, you, you feel that the players are compensated. Well, I, I agree with that. They are compensated, but it's capped. So on one hand, they say they're students, they're not employees. Uh, but then on another hand, we, we make the argument that, that they are compensated. Look at what they're getting. Um, and they do get things, but really what they get more than anything is they get limited. And no other student is limited uh, in any regard across the board. And so, like, look, it's a fundamental difference that we have. Yep. And, and I, don't think it's, I don't think it's any sort of craziness on either person's side. Like, I don't look at, at that argument like – I have this argument with Reese Davis every once in a while. Well, he'll say, now, at the end of the day, it is a choice. Like, the players have a choice. 
I don't happen to agree with them. I don't think when you have a when you have a collusive cartel restriction within a market that that's a choice at all. It's a false choice. I'm always asking, like, why is the choice being put on the athlete? Why isn't the choice on the part of the university? Like, why can't the, the why isn't the university choosing to pay or not, and how much? You know, they don't have that choice. That choice is taken away from them, or, or they give it away in in colluding together to limit athletes. And I get why they do it. I get why they make the arguments they're making because they can keep all the money, and they don't want to pay. I, I, I don't want to pay my employees. Like, we have people that work on our house. Uh, I don't want to pay them if I don't have to, but you have to, and it's the right thing to do. And if this were run like Division Two or Division Three, you wouldn't hear anything from me. Um, but but it's not. Uh, it's, a, it's a big business. Will the world collapse if this goes on this way? No. But I don't think it would collapse either if, you know, if uh, – if Jeffrey Kessler in the Jenkins case, if Jenkins wins in, in, in California in the Ninth Circuit, uh, in the case that's going to trial soon, and the NCAA is forced to allow pay, you know, I don't think the world's going to spin off its axis. I think we're going to do just fine. And I'll leave you with this one, on the, on the, unless you want to keep talking about certain things. But when I was in college in the 80s, if I had gone to a Duke alumni event and said, you know what, someday – you know, Coach K was probably making when I was playing no more than a hundred thousand dollars. If I had said to the all the Duke alums back then at one of these alumni events, you know, someday we're going to pay him eight, nine, ten million bucks a year, they would have said, "Nope, never happened. That's not what college sports is about. We'll never do that. That's not Duke." And they're doing it, and they're consuming it and loving it, and they fly around on private planes. They have gigantic facilities. It's professional in every way. And I have zero problem with it. It's great. But, but the stuff they said that they would never uh, uh, do, they're doing. And, and while everybody says, like, everything would crumble, you're not saying this, but, every, you know, the NCAA does say this, that demand for the game would, would diminish if the players were provided more than a sky, if they were paid. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that. I don't know any reasonable economist that agrees with that. And everything else that college sports does flies in the face of that argument. Uh, we'd be just fine if the players were paid. Um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe that for one second. But, but reasonable minds can differ on these things, and I don't have any problem with, with somebody who sees it differently than I do. Um, I, my, my fear is not whether or not they pay him or not. I, I do have a legit concern about the state of the game. It, it appears that the NBA is going to go back to the, you know, you can come straight out of high school. It, it appears that seems to be a formality. And as much as there are a couple of kids who can kind of make the jump and within a couple of years, um, uh, you know, be good enough, you and I both know that, if there's five that can make it, there's 55 or so that think they can make it. Um, I, I, you combine that with the fact that every game is on TV. My network, your network, the network both of us used to spend some time with at, at CBS. They, they broadcast games. NBC has some. It's, it's kind of been polluted. There's games on every day. There's nothing special about a TV game like there used to be. Like Big Monday used to be it. You were on Big Monday. You are on national TV. Vital was there. Abilis is there. That was it. That was the biggest game. It's not as much that way. Uh, there's more NBA games on now. So even your big Saturday night games, which used to be it, there's also, you know, on ABC, you got N- NBA basketball. I am concerned about the future of college basketball. You know, a lot of college basketball coaches want 
the baseball rule, stay, stay for three years, go straight out of high school or stay for three years. My problem is, doesn't that make college basketball college baseball? Where, where people don't really care nearly as much. That's, that's my concern with the state of game, even more so than whether or not we pay players. Yeah, and that's legit. Um, and I do think, uh, at least in my years in the game, we have become, in large measure for the rank-and-file uh, uh, sports fans out there, we've become basically a one- or two-month sport. And, you know, we're never going to be able to compete with college football or the NFL uh, as long as this train keeps running down the tracks the way it is. Maybe concussions change that. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think concussions are, are you know, so this concussion issue is going to greatly threaten the NFL because it's professional. But it, it, it's an existential problem for college football because I don't see how the NCAA can, if, if this concussion stuff comes out the way I think it will, where where normal contact in a football game can is going to be proven to lead to uh, brain injury that yeah. uh, that you know, college can say with a straight face that that for money we are going to scramble the brains that we're supposed to be educating. Uh, so does basketball do better as a result? I don't I don't know the answer to that. But we can't compete with football right now, and I don't think we should worry about it. Um, the problem I have, Doug, is that. You know, I, I, I think you and I are the same in this, that, you know, I believe in education. Uh, yeah. I think the best thing for any young person is to stay in college as long as they can, and, and not for basketball or whatever sport. Uh, and if they do leave, that they should come back, and they should be welcomed back, and we should encourage them to come back because uh, it's important. And for me, I, I, think the, I think sort of the NCAA attitude comes off as being, if you don't want to do it our way, then be off with you, and we don't care. And, you know, sort of this blaming the one-and-done rule for all of our problems, whether it's the, the FBI thing or you name it, I think is, is wrong. That one-and-done is not to blame for all this stuff. And if we, if we get rid of the one or we, if the NBA gets rid of the one-and-done rule and college, or, uh, players can go out of high school again like they did, you know, from 95 to 05, whatever it was, um, we're still going to have one-and-done players because we've got all these players reclassing. So mm-hmm. they're, they're just going to reclass and get into college earlier and uh, skip their senior year of high school and go to college and still be gone after one year. So we're still going to have all these same problems because the NBA is not going to put in, as far as I know, there's no appetite for them to put in a two-year rule or the baseball rule. That's not going to happen because the, player, the Players Association will never agree to it. And this stuff, I want to wait and see how it comes out, but this stuff where with USA Basketball and the NBA collaborating on, you know, picking the best players and sort of, you know, these, these, the model of what, uh, you know, these European academies, especially in soccer, we seem to be headed that way. What is that going to do to the, 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 the player that's just outside of that cut line? You know, are they going to say, wait a minute, these guys don't know how good I am, I'm leaving. And they make a mistake. You know, are we gonna are we gonna welcome them back? How are we gonna take care of all this stuff? And what are we gonna do with uh, who's gonna be in charge of these players? And and what's gonna keep colleges from hiring them? You know, we say we don't like the AAU guys, and we want to get it back into the high schools. Where do you think the AAU guys are? Gonna, not you, but where do you think the AAU guys are gonna go? They're gonna go to high school. And where do you think the shoe, if the shoe companies aren't sponsoring AAU teams, who do you think they're going to sponsor? They're going to sponsor high the high schools. Right. And we're going to go right back. We're going to have the same system in, a, in, a, in sort of a different time frame. And we're not going to stop the flow of money. 
Um, I just don't believe that can happen. Uh, the money, it's kind of like that line from Jurassic Park where uh, Jeff Goldblum's character says, life finds a way, and money will find a way. And, uh, and I really believe that. I don't mean to sound that cynical about it, but I just don't, I don't think we're going to make a couple of changes from Condoleezza Rice's commission, and all of a sudden we're going to figure this out. I just don't think it's going to work that way. Uh, we, we've had this going on a long time. Like, people cheated when I was in school. Nobody was eligible when I played strictly. Uh, somebody took something. Everybody took something. And, uh, and I don't think there are very many players, honestly, very many good players that are eligible now. Um, these rules are impossible to live by uh, in, in, in a normal society with, with normal human behavior. They're impossible. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that any team that's won a national championship and played in the Final Four and all that didn't have an ineligible player on their roster. They all have, and, uh, and we'd be foolish to think otherwise. Yeah, I, I use a different uh, Jurassic Park reference. I reference uh, Raptors. I feel like coaching pl- high school and college players is they're like Raptors. Remember when they, they explained that every day they test a different part of the fence, right? Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and that's, that's what it's like to raise. That's what, steal that that, one. That, that's what it's like to raise kids, right? They, they, every day they test you, but they test a different part of the fence. They learn. They learn, right? They, they, they do, leave just learn. as big a pile of, uh, of feces around as those, those uh, dinosaurs did. Last thing, you've been more than gracious with your time. Um, what else do you want to do? Like, you, you've done a lot. You're in your early 50s. Your kids are now going to be off, and as uh, you and your wife, you, you guys, we shared a dinner, and it was, it was great. Wendy's incredible. Um, but now uh, you Angie can... Angie is, too. You, I don't know what you did to get her, but uh, it's probably illegal. <laughs> yes, it, it, actually, it actually is. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the substance uh, sometime offline. Um, but but what, you know, there's been talk of, hey, do, do you want to head up college basketball? Um, you did coach. You've been a lawyer. You've broadcasted NCAA tournament games. You, the top guy, at, you have your pick of games at ESPN. What, what, you got 40 years left here, at least on this soil. What else do you want to do? That's a good question. I've not really thought that way in a long time. Um, I, I can tell you at my, at my age now, I'm 54. My kids are just uh, uh, about to get my youngest out of college this, this, uh, this May. Um, my, my biggest focus is that my wife gets to do what she wants to do. Um, she's put a lot of time into to doing what other people want to do, whether it's me or our kids. And uh, so whatever she wants to do, that's going to be priority number one. Um, like on the front of, of the game, like I enjoy the heck, like, like you do, enjoy the heck out of my job. I can't imagine leaving it. It's pretty low stress, and it's all kinds of fun. The only stress I have is travel. Um, but I, I, I've always wanted to help, and I've always, you know, every time there's been a committee, you want me to sit on a committee, I'll sit on it. You want me to do that, I'll do it. Uh, you want me to show up, I'll show up. Um, so if there, if there's a legitimate thing that I could do to help the game, I'll do it. Uh, you know, I hear this commissioner talk. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But but I will like if 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 the NCAA structure, uh, if the game anywhere in the game, if if I can help, I am willing to help. Um, but I'm not looking to. Uh, sort of get into another job where you know I'm an NBA GM or something like. Like I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not jonesing for that kind of thing. Uh, I, I will never say never as to any opportunity um, because I think it, it, 
you know, you never know. Like, I think I've always felt like uh, in whatever job you're in, like at some point we are all going to get kicked to the curb. And very few people get to walk away from whatever they're doing, uh, uh, you know, sort of at the highest level. And, and so, like, I, I'm, I'm all – I fully understand that maybe maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, I have no idea, but I'm going to get kicked to the curb. And, and I, I feel like I can do other things. If I, do, if I get kicked to the curb, I'll figure something out. But right now I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I'm not looking around. And I've always felt like the behavior, the best way to get a, the best way to get a job is do the job you have. And I've been doing the job I have, and I like it. Uh, so I'm not really looking. But your question about, you know, kind of what do you want to, I'm willing to, I'm willing to help in whatever capacity, as much or as little as people in charge may need. And uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm completely open to that. But I'm not, I'm not looking for it. Okay, um, I said that was my last one, but since you're looking to help, let's say Coach K calls you up on the phone. And he says, I need you to come down to Durham. It's very, very important. You come down, he says, all right, I got this list here. I got Bobby, I got Tommy, I got Doc, I got Wojo of Collins. Quinn's doing an amazing job with the Jazz. I mean, I, I would I, not discussed enough is how good a coach Quinn Snyder has become. That's um, exactly right. I just saw him a couple uh, days ago. He's a, as great as Brad Stevens is. Yep. Um, I'm not sure he's any better than Quinn Snyder. I, 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 I honestly, I I'm not sure I believe he is. I think Quinn, I, I went uh, to the, uh, among the young coaches, he's at the top of the game with anybody. I went to the I went to the Clippers series two years ago when they they beat the Clippers in seven, and I went to two different games. And I sat there with Colin Cowherd, a colleague of mine. And I was like, Quinn Snyder is a hellaciously good basketball coach. They get exactly what they want in every key situation. Uh, and then you got Capel, who who just who got his got another job w- with Pitt. Um, who's the guy? Who should be the guy? That's a great question, and I'm and I'm going to sound like I'm dodging it, but but I don't think I am. I don't know um, because I don't know how much longer Coach K is going to go. I I think Doug, if you'd asked me this five years ago, like how much longer is Coach K going to go, I would have said, well, you know, another five years, and and I feel like it's going to be another five years from now. Um, I think the only thing that gets him out of basketball is going to be a health problem. Um, that he's I, I went on that trip that they took to Canada. Uh, uh, in 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 early August or August 13th, whatever it was, and and his energy level is is really high. But the difference this year is he can move. He was out on the court coaching, and I haven't seen him move like that in in easily 10 years. I mean, he was all over the court, and he was not like that the last two three years. Um, you know, I, I think I think this is right. Like for, from April 2016, I think I read this somewhere. April 2016 to now, he's had six different surgeries, and but he's healthy now, and physically healthy, mentally healthy. You name it, he's in a great spot. Um, so like all the guys you named, whether it's Tommy Amaker or Johnny Dawkins, or I, like I don't think Quinn Snyder is going to leave the NBA, but who knows? Who knows what would happen? Um, that's going to be. I don't think I, this is hyperbole, and I don't think it's coming from, like, this deep-seated, you know, Duke blue running through veins of mine or all that. I think replacing Coach K is going to be the toughest act to follow in the history of college sports and maybe, maybe up there in the history of sports. Like, he's been doing this at that school for, I think this is year 39, and all of it has been on television. All of it. Like, John Wooden didn't play on television like this. And uh, Bear Bryant didn't play on television like this. Um, I even think it's going to be a harder act to follow than Saban. 
as great as Saban's been, maybe the best football coach ever in college, and and arguably in in, in you know you could put him up with any NFL coach. I don't know, but I think this is going to be the hardest act to follow ever. And uh, and I, I don't know that who I'd wish that on. I think it's going to be a really really hard hard deal. But um, but there are a lot of good candidates, and I don't know. Honestly, last thing, I don't know that I would limit it to Duke people um, because, you know, you've seen this every bit as much as I have. Like, the, 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 the icons that are being replaced and have been replaced in college basketball, they weren't from the family that they created. So why does well, the next Roy, guy Roy have to be from the family? Just get, the, Roy get was. the best guy. Well, Roy was. I mean, Roy's the one guy, and, and he's and he's finally. And look, it, it took him a while to, to you know to get around to that. But they bought Roy home, and that clearly has worked. And that, that's, that's an the extra, one. That's a good point. But that's an extraordinary happening. You know, I, I understand. It, it, I understand. It, it, I understand. It, it, but okay, it, let's. That's like the outlier, isn't it? Like, who, I, well, who you, else but, have we if we had? You might have had a you know Gene Stallings. You know, comes from the Bear Bryant tree and wins a national championship. But it wasn't like he was there that long. You, you don't have icon replacing icon that often. It, it, that's an extraordinary happening, and uh, and you know somebody's got to take the job after Coach K. But man, that is going to be a that's going to be a bear of a task. And uh, and look, I know there are people that are up to it and they'll do great. But man, that's a that's going to be that is going to be a tough act to follow. Um, I, I can't tell you how thankful I am to uh, one have gotten to hang out with you and Wendy next next year. Uh, you're going to allow us to pick up the tab uh, when you're in our, our hometown. Uh, but And then all the time you spent with us tonight. I really, really appreciate it, and I'm, I'm happy to call you a friend, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time that you spent with us here on this podcast. Well, that's a deal, brother. Looking forward to it, and please tell Angie we said hello. All right. But we'll see you down the road in college basketball season, and thanks for being our guest. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Doug. That's Jay Billis, of course, of ESPN, their lead college basketball analyst. I, I could give you wrap-ups, or I could I could sit here and, and point to things. Uh, but I'll allow you to tweet about it. Obviously, breaking it down into two different parts uh, because of its length. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Two guys from similar sort of area, different sort of backgrounds. But both of us love ball. Hope you loved ball ball. Wow, Jay Billis was incredibly gracious with his time. Feel free to tweet at him. Tweet at me your thoughts in the podcast. And uh, remember, Scott Brooks next week, and he has great stories. But my my sincere gratitude and thanks to Jay spending so much time talking about him, talking about Raph, talking about what it was like to play, what it's been like to cover, and his own future and his thoughts on Duke and college basketball, NBA basketball, a sport that we love, and that's kind of brought us together as friends. Hope you enjoyed listening. Remember to subscribe, download, and rate us. And tune in next week to Scott Brooks, the head coach of the Washington Wizards. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This has been All Ball. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at chumpacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.